Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm awfully glad to have my friend Dr. Mark Muska on the program for the full hour, which means this. Here's the, here's the plan. It is Ask the Professor, so any questions you send over to me, I will present to Mark, and he will answer them to the best of his ability. I was just talking to Ryan, who's producing uh, for me, and he said, I asked him, I said, did you have Mark as a professor? And he said, yes. He said, it was the most homework I did, period. <laughs> Ryan, I'm going to let you to defend yourself if you want. If you want to defend yourself, now's the time. Go ahead. Yeah, it was it was a good thing. I'm not saying it was a bad thing I, by I any was... stretch, but being a media major here, you know, so many <laughs> of the things we do here weren't uh, big tests. So that was that was the deal, though, with Bible classes. So, yeah, yeah good memories. You studied hard, and, and you liked uh, Dr. Muska as your professor, I take it. Yeah, yeah. I loved his baseball stories and uh, everything he had to share, wisdom on all the great things he knows about the Bible. So Yeah, I'm trying to figure out why we don't get baseball stories on this show i don't know i think he has them though he really? has them really all right mark you got some explaining to do well it's not called ask the coach <laughs> what how about one baseball story for me i don't know really i don't know if i can come up with one that quickly maybe ryan maybe ryan do you remember one yeah anyway you, you were quite the player that's that's all yeah, i know was, i know you don't want to talk player. about yourself though so we, we won't make you do that yeah that's nice i yeah. appreciate that yeah all right, Mark, I am glad to have you back on the program. I always look forward to this time. I learned so much when you come on. And you're a, you're a print Bible guy. You've got your Bible open. I look I at do. your Bible, and you've got, like, no written notes in it, which is impressive. You've got this clean, pristine Bible, but you spend so much time in it. It's fantastic. Well, it's I've got it. It doesn't have much writing in it because my old one fell apart that I had all my writing and I had to get a new one. So <laughs> they right. can only rebind those babies so many times. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Hmm? So great questions already. Let me start with one okay. in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter, in the first gospel sermon after Pentecost, Mm-hmm. told the 3,000 that repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. The promise is for all that call on his name. Why does this not get preached from the pulpit? This appears to be the truth. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great statement. It's the response he's looking for from the message he just delivered of Jesus being the Messiah, dying to provide the forgiveness of sins, and so... That's the so what statement there now. Yeah. We can't just hear this and nod our head and say, yeah, that's neat. Uh, we're, we're asked by Peter, Paul, the New Testament writers to respond in a certain way. And we use uh, words for that, uh, words like uh, here, uh, repentance. Uh, other words are believe, confess. Uh, the, there's, a, there's a response demanded to this wonderful message, this good news, the gospel. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Send your questions over. Send the tough ones. Send the easy ones. Send whatever you like, 877-933-2484. Mark, I've been kind of living in Romans chapter 8, the first eight verses for a while. I've been just kind of poking around, and 
I'm looking at verse six. It says, "The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mm-hmm. mind governed by the spirit is life and peace." Seems to be a lot of talk about life and death in in the scripture, isn't there? Yes, it's a, a most uh, I don't know what you want to call it dramatic or drastic con- contrast you can come up with. I don't know if there's any more <laughs> yeah. vivid contrast in life is there than life and death, and yeah. so. And then, Paul's using it as a great analogy here about uh, walking with God versus walking in sin. Yeah. In verse 7, it says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to explain that a little bit to me. Well, it's it's an issue of our, uh, first and foremost, Bill, it comes to, you know, in, in this section, he's talking about living as a Christian, he's he's explaining the gospel section by section, and in here he's making a point to say the first thing to be living for God is to uh, be uh, f- favorable or at peace with God and not hostile toward God. Uh, hostility, you can use a couple different words for that, rebelliousness, defiance, uh, that if someone is defiant against God, uh, hostile— rebellious, nothing else matters. You, you might as well save your breath as far as the way you're living and the, the way that you want to see your life go. Uh, it's, it, well, it's verse 6 again. It's death. It's, it's not life. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the nose on the dog. Yeah. Uh, everything yeah. comes after that. All right, and then if we go back up to verse 1 in, in chapter 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean that there is now no condemnation. Yeah, it, I think he's getting, uh, it's actually a, a statement that ties chapter 8 to chapter 7 because he's been talking about this terrible conflict that we have as humans between our minds where we can recognize the thing to do and what he calls the flesh or our bodies or our sinful natures in this terrible contra- uh, conflict going on there. He he talks about he does the very thing that he does not want to do. Mm-hmm. And he is uh, imprisoned by this, and there's despair almost in the last couple verses of chapter 7 where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And he answers his own question, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he sums it up. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. And so uh, now scholars are going to argue about this a lot. Is he describing the life before the gospel and mm-hmm. before salvation, or is he describing the ongoing issue that we face as uh, Christians to resist sin and the tug of the flesh? I don't know about you, but that's never let go of me. I've always got that nagging thing to uh, to go off uh, toward the, the things of sin, and I have to constantly trust God to resist that and to walk with God. So he's making this case here to say there's there's a conflict there, but now to reassure us, chapter 8, verse 1, 
there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, though, that this is something that uh, does not uh, lead to condemnation. We still have that great hope through Christ. Uh, Last time I checked, Bill, salvation is a gift that's been given to us, and we depend on that gift to be true in order to be uh, someone who is not condemned but uh, now justified. Mm Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Mosca is my guest. Let me know what questions you have. He was a uh, professor here for 38 years. Maybe? Certainly, certain some years. Yeah, 30 yeah, something years. So mm-hmm. he, uh, he'll he take any question you have, 877-933-2484. There's a question about the ways in which the prophets uh, were organized, the way they're, they're organized in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question starts with the book of Ezra, begins with the first year of uh, Cyrus, king of Prussia, of Persia, uh, sending the exiles back, but then later on the other prophets talked about them going back into captivity. The question mm-hmm. is, why are the prophets organized the way they are in the Bible? Well, remember that uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are historical books. Technically, they are not considered prophetic books. That wraps up the historical section of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And then we get into the poetry, beginning with Job and finishing with Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah begins the section of the prophets. Uh, there's many different ways that we can look at this, Bill. Uh, I appreciate what uh, many scholars do is that they arrange those prophets in the Old Testament of with reference to a cataclysmic event that took place for the Jews in 586 B.C. when they were taken off into captivity or exile to Babylon. And that exile lasted for about 70 years. Jeremiah predicted that as one of his prophecies. So the way that the the prophets are often organized, and you can see this uh, uh, pretty pretty accurately in just the ordering of the Old Testament books, is the pre-exile prophets, they prophesy before 586, leading up to this exile that they're going to go into. Then there are two exile prophets, uh, Daniel and Ezekiel, who it's quite clear that they are in exile in Babylon, and they are prophesying there. And then there's three post-exile prophets, the last three books of the Old Testament. So uh, those uh, round out after the exile and what happened when they returned to their promised land. So uh, that uh, I think that's helpful. To uh, I think one of the major challenges that people have reading those Old Testament prophets is to fit them in to the historical sections of the Old Testament. Just when did these people live and what yeah. was going on during their lifetimes? It makes a whole lot of sense out of somebody like Jeremiah who's prophesying right up to the exile, and he's warning the Jews uh, over and over again— uh, Uh, standing on his own. Many times the prophets themselves opposed him, and the priests did. Even those in exile already were (laughs) writing to the high priest in Jerusalem, uh, I thought you're supposed to take care of every madman that tries to prophesy in the temple, so why are you letting Jeremiah continue to talk? So he had this incredible uh, resistance and opposition, but he led right up to that time of the exile. Mm Mm-hmm. We're going to take a little break. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest for Ask the Professor. So any question you have for Mark, please text it over. We'll get you the answer um, uh, that you've been 
waiting for, 877-933-2484. And we'll uh, be right back with Mark. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. Back with Dr. Mark Muska, ask the professor. Thank you for your questions, 877-933-2484. All right, Mark, I'm in, let's see, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Mm -hmm. So how do I not grieve the Holy Spirit? What do I do to not do that? Yeah, I think that is uh, the best way to understand it, Bill, is that that is the opposite of being filled with the Holy Spirit, that when we submit ourselves to the power and control of the Holy Spirit, he acts out within us and enables us to live a life pleasing to God. Uh, That's when we display the fruit of the Spirit, when we are filled with the Spirit over any amount of time at all. Many Christians have experienced this. Hey, you know, I'm just not as short-tempered as I used to be, that I'm more patient, or I'm I'm kinder, I'm gentler. Uh, As they submit to the Spirit, they see this. They also find themselves more effective as a witness. Uh, Acts 1.8, uh, Luke tells us from Jesus that we receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on us and we will be witnesses for Jesus. And then it also helps us to use our gifts the way they're meant to be used. So if you think of that, that's submitting to the power and control of the Holy Spirit. That's a challenge for us every day. Well, to grieve the Spirit. And then in First Thessalonians, he uses another expression to talk about do not quench the Spirit. Those seem to be times when we push the Spirit away and we say, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. Usually, there's some temptation over there going, woohoo, yep, yeah. <laughs> and we're being lured by that, and the Spirit may even be convicting us, and we say, uh, beat it, and we want to do our thing. That's grieving the Spirit. That's quenching the Spirit and not no longer being filled with the Spirit. The tricky thing about the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's a day-to-day, moment-by-moment thing. Uh, we can be submitting to the power and control of the Spirit right now here at, what is it, uh, 520. Mm-hmm. But uh, how about after dinner tonight, Bill? Or yeah. how about on Friday when you go out and you have fun? Or what about next week? It's a moment-by-moment question that uh, I, I love to recommend to people. It's a great way to start the day is to explicitly pray 
and ask God to fill us with his spirit. We're submitting to his control. Everything I say, do, and think, Lord, may it it have your signature on it of the feeling and power of your spirit. I love that. Thank you for that. Thank you for demonstrating just what you pray and how you pray. That was lovely. I like that. Good. All right, here's question, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. How is Satan God of this world? Oh, he uh, he has uh, quite a bit of power in and uh, jurisdiction, you would almost say, in this world because uh, the world is uh, is opposed to God for the most part, and it has uh, uh, turned away from God. So he is uh, he is given this uh, power that that he has. Uh, uh, Paul uses a, a similar kind of a statement over in the book of Ephesians, where again, this is interesting. We've already talked about this, of being dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. But then he says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So it's bad enough that people are rebellious and hostile against God, but the demonic powers come right along with that and energize it and inflame it and aggravate it all the more so that we do things are ridiculous because we're in the power of this prince of the power of the air. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Please send over your question, 877-933-2484. All right, Mark, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'll, I'll read some of this, starting in verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Uh, so as to win those under the law. It goes on and on. And, and then it, he, he, Paul says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Yep. I do this for the sake of the gospel. No, uh, this language he's using that, that, that I can win, I can win as many as possible, and that by all possible I might save. Isn't all this the work of the Holy Spirit? Oh, of is, course, is he it is. acting a little like, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out and win some people for Jesus tonight." Yeah, it's. I think we can be a little hard on Paul here. If you would raise that with him, I'm sure he would correct that <laughs> and probably correct you immediately <laughs> as well. Yeah, but it's it's a great teaching that he is talking here about the freedom that we have in Christ. Uh, Many of his letters, he talks about how in Christ, we are free from the requirements of the law. We do not do those things in order to justify ourselves and to win brownie points with God. But how we use that freedom is the big question. Do we use it to glorify and to please the one whom we love, the one who has saved us, Mm -hmm. or do we use it for sin? And in this case, he's making a great case to say, I'm free in Christ, but the winning other people to the gospel is far more important than me exercising my freedom. So, uh, And Paul was an illustration of this. He ministered among Gentiles, and when he did, he ate with Gentiles and, uh, and uh, socialized with mm-hmm. Gentiles in Gentile kinds of ways. But it's very interesting, when he goes back to Jerusalem, what does he do? He takes a vow, shaves his head, and goes into the temple and acts like a Jew. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't want his 
uh, actions, his appearance even, to be a barrier to the gospel. I have to tell you, I'm really impressed with people who take this seriously. I remember that there is one very high-profile preacher in my early years where I attended the church for quite a while, and he even took this seriously in the way that he dressed. He was not going to dress extravagantly. So anybody out there in the congregation, instead of listening to what he's got to say, they're going to say, oh my goodness, look at Pastor Schmertz there. Where did he give that, you know, awful pink coat that he's wearing up there (laughs) this morning? Uh Uh, That uh, he didn't have to wear that thing. Maybe he liked wearing in that when he went out for uh, a night, uh, Friday night with his wife and went to a movie, go and wear the, the pink coat. He has the freedom to do that. But if that's going to get in the way of someone listening to him and putting their faith in the gospel, it, it, the, the pink coat goes. It's, it's not anywhere close to as important as seeing people one to Christ. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Uh, here's a question, Mark. Can material items be possessed by demons? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, There is evidence that, I'm not sure if the possess is the right uh, word for that, but that can be used by demons. Uh, This gets into some very dark things, Bill, and I don't know how specific I want to get with it. Yeah, that's fine. uh, There are uh, things such as totems and idols uh, practices that take place. For example, a seance is a practice. Uh, sometimes kids think that's so fun to sit around a table and hold hands and call for the spirits. I don't think so. You're asking for trouble there. Uh, that That's opening a door for demons. But then uh, I've been intrigued. This is a, a, a something I don't know that much about personally, Bill, but as I've taught through the years, I've had uh, immigrants in my classes that have come from various places around the world, Southeast Asia and Africa, South America and that, and they talk about how some of these objects that are carved, they might be a carved head or a carved animal that uh, shamans or witch doctors will uh, pray curses over these things. And uh, they have testimony to say this has caused real problems in spiritual battle areas for people who possess these things. And they, they, you know, they even rebuked us saying, you foolish Americans, you go on a missions trip and bring these home. You don't realize what you might be bringing into your house. And so uh, I think there's very much more potentially going on with that. Again, uh, if if we're that hard up for things to put in our house or activities that we want to take part in, uh, we got to get a more exciting life, you know that that's, uh, I don't think that's necessary at all. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Thank you for that, too. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question for Mark, let us know what it is. You can send it over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We got some great questions coming in, but I don't think I've got time to get Mark started on another one before the break. But I do want to welcome all the new listeners that we have from the the uh, state, the great state of Missouri. And if you are just discovering Faith Radio and you're interested in getting a welcome pack, we've got one for you with your name on it. All you have to do is uh, text the word WELCOME to 877-933-2484 and we'll get you a welcome pack. And There's Missouri now, huh? That's pretty cool. Yeah, we're in Missouri. We're all over the state. I think with the exception of St. Louis. But other than that, we're, we're covering the state of Missouri. Isn't that neat? It is. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever been to Missouri? Oh, all kinds of times, yeah. Really? What for? 
wonderful state. Well, sometimes I'm just driving through on my way somewhere else, yeah. but I've had some really good times in Missouri. There's some uh, wonderful places in the southern part of the state, and uh, uh, I, I like Kansas City. There's a lot of, lot of different things yeah. to do. It's a, it's a yeah. great state. That's terrific. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, make sure you get your questions over. We've got a full uh, 30 minutes still to go with Dr. Mark Muska, and 877-933-2484 is the number, and we'd love to get your question. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thank you for joining me today. I love spending time with you. I've got Dr. Mark Muska as my guest, and that means ask the professor time. You can send any question you like, 877-933-2484. Mark, here's a question. Why do we need a mansion in heaven? Oh, I don't know. That's that's one of the translations of this. You know, it's, uh, sometimes it's, it's over in John's Gospel, Jesus reassuring the disciples uh, just before he goes to Gethsemane and is arrested, and so he's saying that he's he's preparing a place for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just told them, however, that he's leaving them, and that is uh, no small issue for them. Uh, it seems to trouble them greatly that he's leaving them, but he's telling them he will come back to them, and in fact, they will be with him, uh, with the Father in these mansions or in these places that are prepared for them. So uh, I don't know if, if we have to dwell too much on the nature of that place. I don't care if it's a lean-to tent, if it's in heaven and I'm with Jesus. Amen. That sounds great to me. That sounds good to me, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's another one. Is the Garden of Eden still a real place on earth? Is there any indication in the Bible where it's located? Well, there are indications. If you look at the description of where the garden uh, was located, uh, this goes way back to the book of Genesis there, and just the uh, you know very first things being talked about here in uh, Genesis chapter 2, uh, there is a geographical uh, reference point here, if uh, if you look at it, and so uh, uh, I'm, I'm looking here at Genesis two eight. It says the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there He placed the man which He had formed. And uh, verse ten. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good and so forth. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. And when he says that, that should raise some ears there to say, I've heard of the Tigris River. And he says here, as a matter of fact, that it flows east of Assyria. 
And we know where that is as well, uh, that Assyria is in modern uh, the area that modern-day Iraq is in. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And that one again, of course, we know we can see that on maps. So the garden at least was in that locale somewhere, but is it, uh, it, does it still exist? Uh, if it does, it is hidden in some kind of a way where no one has ever been able to find it. It's been the source of some great fiction and movies where people, you know, they they go through some uh, dark enclosure in the jungle and they come out and, ooh, here we go. We got the Garden of Eden there. And uh, that's uh, fanciful, but I don't, uh, I don't uh, hold to the idea that there is the Garden of Eden on earth yet. Uh, the best explanation I've ever heard, even though it's speculation, is that after Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, the garden was not tended by them. Remember, God gave Adam the charge to tend to the garden and protect it. And without that there, uh, the garden, uh, it diminished. Anybody who's had a garden in the summertime knows that if you don't continue to water and weed and fertilize in that, the thing can fall apart on you. So uh, perhaps this is what happened to the Garden of Eden. It uh, simply deteriorated to the point where it's uh, no different than any other uh, garden or a, a jungle or or woods on the earth anywhere. Mm-hmm. But that's but that's speculation. But we do have an idea that it was in the Near East there. Yeah. Dr. Mark Mosca is my guest. Send your questions over 877-933-2484. Don't be bashful. Send it now. All right, Mark, let's jump over to Matthew 13 in okay. verse 47. Let's talk about the parable of the net. It says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore, and they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets and threw the bad away. Now, mm-hmm. the fish didn't have a choice as to which ones got in the net or not, right? Nope, they caught them all. Yeah. So how are they divided into the good and bad? Uh, I think it's within reason to say uh, based on their response to the gospel. The, the point of this parable appears to be that uh, everyone— is is invited everyone is part of this call of the gospel uh, fish of every kind and so there's the, uh, the way I like to put it is in the negative bill that there's no uh, people group or location on earth that is excluded from the gospel message we are to get it out to the whole schmeal mm-hmm. everywhere uh, coast to coast around the world but then uh, the rest- uh, not just because you have been exposed to the gospel doesn't mean that you will be saved that you must respond to it even though Jesus doesn't get into that in this particular parable but uh, we have we have the choice to put our faith in the gospel and depend on it to be forgiven or to resist it and reject it and so that may be what he's getting at there with the the, the fish the two different kinds of fish Mm-hmm. Mark, could you give us a couple of three or four minute teaching on Romans chapter nine? Wow. I know that's a, a big ask. You can take as much time as you like, but I just thought. Yeah, thanks uh, a lot. That's one of the, the most difficult well, chapters. I, just, I had a question about that. So it's not, I'm just pulling this out of thin air. Is it your question? No, here? it's not my question. It's it's from. Confession's good. You know, I mean, <laughs> you, you gotta, gotta come clean here. Uh, not from so. me. Romans 9, very difficult passage. In fact, uh, Romans 9 through 11 uh, is a a challenge for anyone 
to study and to teach from because there's a lot of content in there that's very provocative. Uh, just to give you a reference point here that uh, in Romans 1 through 11, Paul appears to be giving an expanded explanation of the gospel message. He tells us in chapter 1 of Romans that he has not yet been to Rome with the gospel. And since he is an apostle that proclaims the gospel, he's concerned that they have the correct gospel message. And so he's going to give them a, an 11-chapter explanation of the gospel. So he talks about sin for the first three chapters. He talks about justification by faith in uh, fourth, chapters 4 through 6. He talks about living as a, a follower of Christ in uh, 6 through 8. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he gets into this issue. It must have been an issue at Rome where they had both Jews and Gentiles. He talks about how the gospel is... Uh, proclaimed, received, and uh, uh, explained to both Jews and Gentiles. Remember, Gentile, that's anybody that isn't a Jew. In the Bible's uh, vernacular, there's two ethnic groups in the world. There's either Jews or non-Jews, Gentiles. And so chapters 9 through 11 get into explaining how the gospel has been received and the consequences for both Jews and Gentiles. So in chapter 9, he starts out by saying that uh, he, uh, listen to the anguish here in his voice in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself was accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about Israel and the Jews because they they have the promises of God, and yet they've resisted Jesus, and it grieves him terribly. So he gets into this issue about, well, has God chosen them? And he gets into this topic of election. Election's a fancy word to choose. When we elect a president, we choose a president. And so he gets into this to say how uh, God's word has not failed, he says, in chapter 6. And then he talks about Israel and their response to the gospel, and it's incredibly difficult to work through. Uh, Let me just read a couple of verses here that get everybody worked up on this. He says, uh, for example— he talks about uh, Rebecca having twins in her. You remember the the the, uh, the mother of uh, Esau and Jacob? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And while they were not yet born, he says in verse 11, and had not done anything good or bad, so the God's purposes according to his choice or election would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, and this is what God said to her, the older will serve the younger. And Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's before they were even born. And so this gets into this idea of predestination or foreordaining things. It sounds like they didn't have much of a choice in the matter, where, of course, they did. The Bible tells us that we must respond to the gospel. We have that responsibility, but also it's God's choices being made as well. And so uh, that is tough stuff, Bill. And then he goes to Pharaoh as well, where uh, Paul reminds us God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let Moses and the people go. 
And in verse 18, he sums it up. So he says, so then God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Talk about a whopper wow. to try to get your thoughts around there. Yeah. You know, that's a big one. And Paul knows it because in the next verse, he knows he said something really heavy. He just got done saying he has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens whom he desires. And then he poses two questions. You'll say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? If he's decided to show you mercy, how can you resist him? If he's decided not to show you mercy, how can you believe the gospel? And Paul's answer is not acceptable at all. It's a non-answer answer. He just poses those questions and he says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have right over the clay? If I'd put that in 21st century language, Bill, I'd say Paul's pretty much saying to people asking that question, maintain your place, boy. <laughs> he's he's mm-hmm. the creator. You're the creation. You don't judge God. You don't assess his fairness according to your standards of fairness. You're the creature. And so uh, we are we are challenged to accept this. Now, I know I'm about six feet under with at least half of your audience right now because this is really tough. But the way I handle this, Bill, is to say when someone puts their faith in the gospel, let's let's do it this way. You proclaim the gospel to two people. You got Sam and Bill standing in front of you, and you proclaim the gospel to them. Sam decides to depend on Jesus to forgive his sin, and Bill says, forget it. Now— Paul's getting into here, why did they do that? What was God doing there, and what were they doing? Uh, God was showing mercy to Sam, and he put his faith in the gospel. God was not showing mercy to Bill, and he refused it. But you can also say, why did Bill uh, resist the gospel? Because he wanted to. Mm -hmm. That was his choice. Why did Sam put his trust in the gospel? Because he wanted to. So there's a both and going on there at the same time. And you know what, Bill? I've taught this stuff for a long time, and you're never going to untie all the knots there that that presents of speculation of what's going on in the background. What is God doing to influence? What are people doing to choose? What I come back to is what I can know, and that is the Bible clearly tells us that when we hear the gospel, we must put our trust in it to be saved. And if we don't— we're in trouble. Yeah, thank you for now, that. Now, what, what our role in that is, I can't figure all that out. What God's role is in all that, I can't figure it out. But that's the reality of the, the, what, the, the realism of the choices that we have as human beings when we hear the gospel. And that's what I emphasize, not these speculative behind-the-scenes questions that'll just get you frustrated if you let them, uh, let them tangle you up enough. Yeah, nicely done, Mark Mosca. Thank you for that. We're going to take a break. We still have time for your question. 877-933-2484. Be back with Dr. Mark Mosca. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com.
Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. It is Ask the Professor time. Great questions coming in. Thank you for sending questions. It, it makes it really for a great hour. So, Mark, 1 Corinthians 2.9. No, uh, no, I mean, I'm just, I, I, I don't, I think I probably got people mad at that last one. Well, you probably did, but that's okay. Mm. You, 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 you're, you're nice about it, though. I think so. I try to be. You're, you're gentle and kind and thorough, so no, that that's going to happen. People have differences of opinion and different interpretations of things, right? That's for sure. Yeah. All right. First Corinthians two nine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Is is that uh, earthly outcomes or heavenly outcomes? Uh, in the context here, he's getting at things that. Uh, uh, are earthly but carry over into heavenly things. That this Paul in chapter two is talking about how he was weak as a lamb when he came with the gospel, but the power of the gospel wasn't in him; it was in the power of the message. And so uh, he says that uh, uh, my message, verse four, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power. Of God, and then he gets into wisdom and talks about it. There is a wisdom that is not of this age or the rulers of this age, verse 6, but this hidden wisdom that will be revealed in part in this life, but much more of what's happening uh, in the future as well. He's quoting here in verse 9, what you read there comes from Isaiah 64, that that's a a part of Isaiah's prophecy. Thank you for that. All right, here's a question. In church, I rarely hear the sermon based on the book of Revelation. Why is that? (laughs) You want to know what I really think? I'm going to get at the other half, man. Go ahead. Uh, I think a lot of times pastors are mystified by the book of Revelation. Okay. And so they struggle with it. Uh, I hear so many Christians that they just almost have a pox against the book of Revelation. They get frustrated by it. There's all kinds of symbolism, and they don't get it. And I have to admit, I don't get some of the things in there as well. It's very difficult to uh, interpret it properly and have confidence that you're getting it right. But it still has a whole lot in it that is really good. So uh, I I feel for your listener there that's saying, you know, there's just not much taught from the book of Revelation. I'll tell you what is a really great study, though. This is probably, oh my goodness, 20 years ago that the church that my wife and I belonged to, the pastor was doing a series through Revelation, but he focused, Bill, on the person of Christ and the way Christ is described and magnified. It was a fantastic wow. series where he preached through the first several chapters of that. It was really good because that is not all that hard to interpret. It's It lays it out there very clearly who Jesus is and the glory that's coming to him now and that will come to him in the future too. So there's ways to get into it and teach it. People just get tied in knots with all of the events that are described and the sequence of events and when they're happening and uh, they, they, uh, they avoid the book. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark, uh, Luke 8, 43 to 48, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. He didn't say God did it. He said, your faith. 
Yep. How do we connect those dots? Well, it's it, it, you get into this, and I'm no philosopher. Maybe you need to have Brad Sickler come and talk <laughs> to you about this because that when you start talking about causality, okay. there are ultimate causes, there are intermediate or secondary causes, and that comes into play here. The ultimate thing that saves us is God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. But the means by which he does it, the means of the cause is by our faith and are depending on him uh, for, and especially in the Gospels, this is when people are believing Jesus and they're depending on him to be healed of something or the other. And so their faith has healed them. It's been Jesus that did it, but their faith was the critical uh, intermediary part of this that made it possible. Yeah. But when you read this and you think, well, I've heard people say, if you had more faith, yeah, uh, you would have. You wouldn't have had that cancer, or you would have been healed, or something like that. That's and that is a healthy. dead end every time. Because you get into this, uh, I think we have to be really careful. We could spend a whole show talking about uh, what do we do when prayers aren't answered, or at least they're not answered the way we want them to be answered. And that's tough when someone is sick, and even to the point of it becoming a terminal illness, this people petition God, and he doesn't seem to answer their prayer. And there's a temptation there to go two ways, Bill, and both of them have a big dead-end sign on them, but we still seem to do it. One of them is what you just said, well, my faith isn't strong enough, or I don't have complete faith or perfect faith, and that's why my loved one died. Or the other one that's just as sinister is, I must have some sort of unconfessed sin in my life, and so God is not hearing my prayer. Uh, you can drive yourself right in in into the insane asylum uh, t- uh, thinking like that. It is just very difficult. Of course, you examine your conscience and make sure to the best of your abil- ability as the Spirit is convicting you that you've confessed all the sin that God brings into your mind. You take care of that. And of course, you you strive to trust God as much as you can to uh, to to act. I like what the man said to Jesus when he come down came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, the remember the apostles were trying to heal this boy and they couldn't do it. And uh, uh, Jesus talked with his father and said, "Do you believe I can heal your son?" And the words are great. This is our guide where the guy says, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. <laughs> where so good. He, he's believing as, as much as he can, but he knows it's not perfect. He's got doubts and he's got questions, but it's not the level of our faith that that does the does the job. It's who we are believing in. And that's where Jesus makes his point about if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be caught up and cast into the sea. It's not the level of your faith. It's who you're believing in, the Lord Jesus Christ, that matters. Mm -hmm. Mark, this is kind of a Trinity question, so I'm not sure sure how easily this is answered, but was Jesus indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Yes. When he was on earth? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I assume they were inseparable, right? They're not well, apart. Uh, well, uh, very uh, powerful when he gets baptized. You remember what happens? The Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And so 
Uh, this is something where he is acting in the power of the Spirit when he's on earth. And that unity, he, he describes it very powerfully, there's a lot of questions that come out of it, but in John chapter 16, he gets into this relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and he speaks about how the Spirit doesn't speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears from me and from God, that's what he proclaims. And so there's some intricacy there that we try to piece together that uh, uh, Jesus discloses to us there in that chapter. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about prayer, and do we sometimes just try to play some maneuver with God to try to really get what we want and, and say, Lord, this is the desires of my heart. I'd really love it if you answered my prayer the way I'm asking. And then you don't see the answer. You don't see the answer. And then after a while, you start to go, okay, well, whatever. Thy will be done. Do you, do you see that happening uh, with people that you have known throughout your life? Oh, sure. Yeah. It happens to me. Okay. I've got somebody sick, Bill. I'm going to pray that God heals them. Amen. And, it, I mean, that that just seems so blatantly obvious. That's what you're going to pray. And if the person ends up getting worse and dying, I may have to say it with tears in my eyes, but yet not my will but yours be done, Lord. Just what Jesus said in the garden. It's a, it's a great model for that. So... I like it. A lot of people have testified to this, Bill, that as they pray for something over the years, they've noticed that their prayers change, sometimes very subtly. They don't see it at first, but what they're asking from God changes, and he seems to conform their desires to what his plans and purposes are. And that's uh, it's kind of a mysterious thing. You can't just nail it down and look at it like in a laboratory or something like that. But uh, there's enough people, I think, probably listening right now that could testify to that, that as they had significant prayer requests, they, they saw their thinking about it change as they prayed about it more and more mm. as God was working with them. Mark, thank you for sharing your gifts with us and doing it regularly. I just love having you on the show, and I know uh, everyone who tunes in loves loves it as well. We're out of time already. Yeah, can you believe it? Wow. Yeah, it really does fly by. What's the uh, what's the temp in Sioux Falls, South Dakota? It's hot. I don't need to have a temperature. I know it's hot out. <laughs> well, so. have have a great rest of your evening, and my best, Karen. And I look forward to the next time we get on the air together. Thanks, friend. It's great to see you and at least to hear you. Yep. Thank you so much. Dr. Mark Muska has been my guest. Ask the professor. We do this regularly. And if you have a question, you can send it over anytime. I'll put it in a file called Questions for Mark, and I'll have him ready for it next time he's on the air. That's our show for the day. I've loved being with you. I just love our time together. And if you missed any of today's show, check out the podcast. You can do that at myfaithradio.com. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.